Uh, like you've seen this morning, two students gave their life to Christ. One of those students actually wasn't here to get baptized at his home church. Um, but more than that, uh, four students said, I feel like the Lord is telling me to take this gospel to people who will never hear it if it's not for God working, using me as a vessel. And that was uh, really encouraging to me to see how the Lord was going to move in that way, was moving in that way. There's so much fellowship, so much fun, so many deep relationships being built. And in everything, Christ really, truly was exalted. From early morning prayer times on the beach to seeing the Lord answer those prayers later that day to swimming and playing spike ball and dancing to small groups and meaningful conversations to confession of sin and repentance to worship and the preaching of the word. I mean, like Christ was truly exalted. It was so so great. And I say all that to say thank you for your investment, prayer, and uh, your investment of finance to these students. I know the Lord used it all and none of it, absolutely none of it was, was in vain. Just a quick aside, if I drink a lot of water this morning, it's because I'm not feeling too great. I got a little bit of a sore throat, um, but just from allergies from being back, but Liz drug me up this morning, so I'm all good. Um, we're going to get through it. This morning, though, we're going to be taking a short break from our True and Better sermon series in in a way. We'll still be looking at Christ in Scripture, but we're not going to be looking at Christ through the lens of the Old Testament. That being said, if you want to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1, that's where we're going to spend all our time this morning. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, and most people believe that Mark was the first of the Gospels to be written. The other Gospels used Mark as a reference. It tells the story of Jesus' birth, then his life, to death, to his resurrection, and to his ascension. And as you're turning there, I know several people said something to me earlier. You've probably noticed that the outline I gave you is completely blank. Um, It's not because there's no notes to be taken. It's because there's a whole lot of notes to be taken. And I wanted to let you all creatively look um, and and take them how you want to take them uh, at at the time that those notes come. But anyways, we're going to dive into Mark. Chapter 1, verse 1. Don't stand quite yet. We'll stand in just a few moments to read, but I want to look at verse 1 for just a second. So Mark says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or in other words, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. So here's what we learned from Mark right out of the gate. The gospel is good news because it's all about Jesus. Jesus himself is the good news. He doesn't give any preface or clarify any specific people. He just says Jesus is good news for everyone. The question I hope we answer today is, do I really believe this? Do I really believe that Jesus is good news? I know we're all inclined because we know the answer is yes. But in my life, do I really believe that Jesus is good news? I'm not sure how many of you know Harbor, but um, we love Harbor. She does so much. She was the one passing out handouts this morning, actually. She's, uh, you've probably heard her laugh at some point in time. But leading up to camp, Harbor found this really old vintage video camera. And uh, it, it's like from the 90s or something. She found it in like an attic. I don't know where she found it. But um, a yard sale. For $10. She found this camera for $10. This is old. Like, you got to flip it open to video and record it. 
and you got to pop the cassette tape in and it makes that clicking noise. Most of y'all are older than me. Y'all probably know what, what, what I'm talking about better than I know I'm talking about myself. It's not vintage. It's not vintage. It's vintage to me. It's not vintage to y'all. But um, anyway, she found this camera and she was like enamored with this camera. She loved this camera. She was at our house the night before taking videos of us, showing us videos of the previous owners. And it was like incredible. She loved it. We get to camp and she's taking all these videos of people, interviewing people, vlogging like she's a famous YouTuber. And then tragedy struck. Before worship one night, I'm sitting there talking to somebody and I just hear Harvard to my left go, oh no, all the videos are gone. And she had apparently lost or somehow deleted every single video she had taken. And uh, in that moment, um, I wish I could have said I went over and consoled her and comforted her, but I just busted out laughing. Like, it, was, it was hilarious uh, the way she talked about it. And I, I moved on to my next conversation. I resumed my conversation. And then about three minutes later, I hear another shout from Harbor on the left. This time it wasn't a shout of, oh no. She went, yes! The videos are still here. And like everybody in like a 20 mile radius turned their heads and looked at Harbor because she had somehow recovered her videos. And then after the service, she found out the videos were gone and they stayed gone that time. But, but in that moment, when she recovered those videos, she was, yes, they're still here. There was so much joy in her face. She was so happy that she had all her videos and on that old little camera that she could look back at and remember for years and years to come. In this moment, Harbor was so full of joy and excitement and, and exclaimed the good news that her camera hadn't been, her, her memories of her camera hadn't been ruined. In the same way, the question I want us all to answer today is, how do we respond to the good news of Jesus? Do we respond, yes! Or do we just kind of hear it and move on with our life? Do we really see that Jesus is good news? One night during small group with my guys, I asked a simple question, how have you been blown away by the person of Jesus this week. How has what we've learned about Jesus blown your mind? And for over an hour, the seven guys in my room just talked with so much joy about how wonderful and powerful, righteous, gracious, and awesome Jesus is. We were all so mind blown at the goodness of Jesus. My prayer today is that as we dive into Mark 1, Jesus would blow our minds this morning. That we would see with clear eyes today why this Jesus is such good news. So let's stand and read Mark chapter 1 together. Um, listen, I know we're reading a lot. We're going to read almost to the end of the chapter through verse 42. But I want you to think for a moment um, and put, immerse yourself in this situation. Because here's the reality. These events, what we're about to read is not fairy tale. It's not some like idealized thing we've made in our minds and and we look back and think about it up in the clouds like this is real life. Like Jesus was walking the earth and this was really happening as Jesus lived his life. Anyways, and we'll pick up in verse two and read all the way through verse 42. It says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with the water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as, as the scribes. And immediately there was an... Uh, there was in this, their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, and they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and fever left her and she began to serve them. And that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for Jesus. 
Lord, I pray that as we look at the person and work of Christ, we would marvel at the beauty of our Savior and King. Give us grace through your spirit to hear, to know, and to firmly believe the good news of Jesus. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. I know there's a lot here in this passage, but in this text, we see at least 16 portraits of Jesus that display the good news. And don't worry, my 16 points are not like Justin's 16 points. We'll hopefully we'll hopefully still be out of here in time for lunch. But anyways, at the beginning of the chapter, first thing we learn, Mark tells us, is that Jesus is true. Jesus is true. This is important because without knowing this, we have no hope. He can say all he wants, but if he's not true, what hope do we have? In verse 2, though, Mark refers to the prophet Isaiah, and he refers to the prophet to verify that Jesus was indeed Messiah and Lord. Jesus is the complete fulfillment of prophecy, and even at the beginning of his ministry, we're able to see that Jesus is true as he follows the footsteps of John. He really was who he said he was, and we can have confidence in him. And in this prophecy, as we're reading it, what we learn when we learn that Jesus is true, we also learn, number two, that Jesus is Lord. In the words of Isaiah in verse three, he says, Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is master over all. He is possessor of all things. All things were made by him, through him and for him. There is no one else like him. Everything is in submission to him. Oceans go where he tells them to go and no further. Mountains rise where he tells them to rise and no further. The heavens declare his glory. The lightning asks him where it should strike. The thunder asks him where it should roll. The rain asks him where it should fall. The whole earth is bending beneath the will of Jesus. Do we believe that? Jesus is Lord. And we can have confidence that Jesus is master and Lord because of number three. Jesus is all powerful. It's all powerful. Verse seven, John is going before Jesus preaching about Jesus. He says, after me comes one who is mightier than I. Here's what we see. Jesus is the almighty. All power and all might belongs to him. By the word of his mouth, water turns into wine. Fish and bread are multiplied to feed thousands. Raging oceans cease to rage. Dead people are made to live again. Blind eyes are open. Deaf ears can hear. In the life of Christ, even as we look at him walk step by step on the earth, we see that all the power that's ever existed belongs to that man. Nothing can come against him. Nothing will ever defeat him. He possesses all power over all things to do whatever he wants. Not only is Jesus powerful in this mini sermon from John, we see that Jesus is worthy. In the same sentence that John speaks of Jesus's great power and might, he speaks to the worthiness of Christ. He says this Jesus that is coming, I'm not even worthy enough to untie the sandals on his feet. Like, imagine this. 
The most lowly act of stooping down and untying someone's shoes, John says he's not even worthy to do that before Jesus. Jesus is so good and righteous and holy that even to stoop down and untie his sandals is a tax too high for anyone to perform. His worth surpasses everything. And John even goes further in this display of Christ's worthiness by making much of the worthiness of Christ's work. John says, I baptize with water, but Jesus will baptize with the spirit. The work of Christ is far superior to anyone else's. John wants us in this moment to feel the vast superiority of Jesus in this contrast. I love what John Piper says about this verse. He says, baptizing with the spirit and baptizing with water is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. It's the difference between a person and to painting and a painting between a marriage and a ring between a birth and a birth certificate between immersion in water and immersion in God. So what John is saying is that this contrast is what he has been saying all along. I'm nothing compared to this one. What I do and what he does are in two radically different categories. I dare not untie his sandals. He was absolutely before me. He ranks infinitely above me. I'm the voice. He is the message. I'm the temporary pointer. He is the eternal person. I'm mere man, but he is the God man. All that is in the world. And all the people of the world will never compare to the greatness of this Jesus. To him and only him belongs all praise, honor, and glory. And praise God, church, a day will come where every single knee is going to bow and every single tongue is going to confess the worthiness of Christ. But in spite of the lordship of Christ, in spite of the great power and might of Christ, in spite of his worthiness and greatness above all people, in spite of all of that, we learn in verse nine that Jesus, number five, identifies with sinners. Here we see Jesus being baptized by John. And earlier, though, we saw that John came to baptize with a baptism of water for repentance. And since Jesus never sinned, why would he need this baptism? And the truth that we see about Jesus here is that he didn't in any way need to be baptized to repent from sin. But he was he chose to be baptized in order to identify with sinners, to identify with us. He did not take the position of superiority, even though he is far superior. He didn't look down on us with disgust, even though he would have been perfectly righteous to do so. No, this worthy, powerful Lord came down and made sure sinners know they could look to him. He made sure sinners knew he didn't come to destroy them. He came to deal with their sin. He didn't come to loathe them. He came because of how much he loves them. This righteous, worthy Lord identifies with sinners. And after this baptism, in verse 11, we hear the voice from God in heaven say, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And in this statement from God, we see two portraits of Jesus that are like a one-two punch. Number six, 
Jesus is loved by God. And number seven, Jesus is pleasing to God. Christ Jesus is deeply loved by God the Father. And the work of Christ is deeply pleasing in God's sight. Listen to me. This is good news because Jesus is the intercessor on our behalf to God. Our relationship with God stands only as firm as the work of Christ stands. And we know that because Jesus is loved by and because he is pleasing to God, his work on our behalf will stand forever before God. But this isn't the only place in Jesus's life where we see God say this. When Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, we hear basically the same exact statement from God. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So in this instance, God is talking to Jesus's disciples about Jesus. And because Jesus is loved by God and because the work of Christ is sufficient and pleasing to God, all those who come to Jesus should listen to him. It's a joy for Christ's followers to listen to Christ because of his relationship with the Father. Then as we see him be approved by God before people, Jesus is then by the Spirit led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the story. In this setting, we see two more pictures of Christ on display. Number eight, Jesus was tempted to sin. But then the glorious truth of number nine is that Jesus never wavered. Jesus was met by Satan in the wilderness and tempted for 40 days while he prayed and fasted and he never failed. Not one time. He never entertained the thought of pursuing sin. Never gave any ground for sinful desire to stand on. Never once failed to obey God perfectly. See, when Satan met Adam in the garden, Adam failed miserably. And because of that, all of us are deemed sinners. But when Jesus met Satan in the wilderness, he did what Adam could not do. And he withstood all temptation, reversing the curse of sin for all who would come to him. Through Adam, each of us have inherited death. It's not that we're going to die. We are dead through Adam. But through Christ, each of us can inherit life because of his sinlessness and because of his suffering on our behalf. Jesus didn't waver, and because of that, because of his never wavering, he is the giver of life. Jesus is good news. And then continuing to follow Jesus after this whirlwind of a situation, once once he was tempted in the wilderness, he went back to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And here's what we learn in Jesus' word. In Jesus' words, number 10, Jesus brought God's kingdom because ultimately, Number 11, Jesus is the king. Look at verse 15. Jesus said himself, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Why was the kingdom of God at hand? How did Jesus know that the kingdom was here? Was this just some sort of abstract decision that was made at some point in time? No, the kingdom of God was at hand because the king had come. There is no kingdom without the king. In fact, the kingdom is all about who the king is. So when Jesus, the great king, came, he brought the kingdom of God with him. And here's what we know about God's kingdom. It's not going anywhere. His kingdom will be established from this time 
throughout all of eternity. All other great kingdoms and dynasties have come and gone. The Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Ming Dynasty, the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and everything in between, all of these things has fallen down in history. And every kingdom and dynasty that's standing right now will fall. Let's not be naive to think the United States is exempt from this. No hope can be placed in any kingdom that is not the kingdom of God. Because this king has come and because he is reigning on his throne for all eternity. He's the good king of the eternal kingdom. And as Jesus, this great king, walked the earth, his next encounter that Mark records teaches us that not only is he the king of this kingdom, number 12, Jesus invites us into God's kingdom. As Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God, he approaches four men and he calls these four men to be his disciples. They're the first four disciples of Jesus. He approaches these fishermen on a boat and says, boldly, follow me. and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Think about this for a moment. The king of heaven who left the throne of eternal glory came down to walk the earth. He's more powerful than all of us, more worthy than all of us could ever imagine. He met Satan in the wilderness and left without any stain of sin. This Jesus approaches fishermen. The low class peasants of society, the most unlikely people for Jesus to approach. Yet he approaches them, invites them into God's kingdom and makes them ambassadors of this kingdom. This is a beautiful display of the call of Christ to all people. He invites us wicked sinners into God's kingdom. And more than that, he makes us ambassadors of this kingdom entrusting us with the gospel and giving us the responsibility of advancing his kingdom to those who don't yet know him. And immediately as I say that, I'm just like, what in the heck is Jesus thinking? I mean, of all the prospects out there, I don't feel like I'm anywhere near the top of that list. But neither were these fishermen. So Jesus chooses people who are unable and incapable to be the people that fill his kingdom. Because those who are most needy are those who will be most dependent upon the king. Let's continue to follow this great king through Mark 1. He calls these four disciples and then he moves on into Capernaum. And boy, Jesus puts on a show at Capernaum. Let's read verses 21 through 28 together one more time and then we'll talk about it. He says, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority And not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. An unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. 
There's a lot we can learn about Jesus in these verses. But here's what I think Mark wants us to see. Number 13. Jesus has all authority. Even as Jesus is teaching, his authority is being put on display. He spoke in such a way where people felt that there was authority in his words. And then he did something that showed without a doubt Jesus does possess all authority. He commanded this unclean spirit to be silent and come out of a man. And it happened. Imagine this. Just imagine this for a moment. There is a man who is suffering under the influence of a demon. And Jesus commands that demon to be silent and leave. And then it happens. The man begins to convulse and cry out with a loud voice. And then the spirit leaves him. If that happened in this room today, we would all lose our minds like these people did here. I don't know about you. I would be amazed and at the same time kind of confused. Most of all, I'd probably be pretty terrified at what I just witnessed happen. But in this moment, the authority of Jesus is lifted up. And it becomes clear that no one has ever possessed the authority that Jesus does. You know what Jesus did with this authority before he left the earth? He charged us to go and make disciples of all nations. I love what Haven said earlier this morning and those students who wanted to go spend their life overseas. We've been born in a place by God's grace that has complete, easy access to the gospel. But three billion people alive today haven't. Three billion, 40 percent of the world's population. So for, for some perspective in this Bible we're holding. There are about 3 million characters, not words, letters, 3 million letters in this. And there are 3 billion people who will never hear the name of Jesus. Just again, for some perspective, 3 million seconds, like one, two, three, four, 3 million seconds is about 33 days, 3 billion seconds, about 99 years. I say that to emphasize how big of a deal it is that three billion people have never heard and likely never will hear the name of Jesus. This is an urgent mission, and it's precisely why Jesus used all of his authority to call us to go to these people. We should look all the barriers, burdens, sacrifice and danger in the face and be people who say, bring it on, because the spread of the good news of Jesus is worth it. And it's my genuine desire because of the authoritative words of Jesus that this church would raise up people and specifically in my realm of ministry that students would be raised up. And that we would realize that the American dream is not the pursuit we've been called to. We shouldn't be content with just living a life with a few nice things and then dying and going to heaven. I pray that our lives would be marked by radical obedience to the authority of Jesus to be people who go to those people who will never hear the name of Jesus, even if it means death. Jesus has all authority. He's used it to send us to people who are never going to hear his name. And he used it to heal this man. From a demon in this moment. 
Once Jesus heals this man, he leaves and goes to the house of some of his newly found disciples. And at once we see that Simon's mom has fallen sick. And then he heals her. Imagine that. Then check out this beautiful truth in verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. So here's what we see here. Good news about Jesus. Number 14. We're almost there. Jesus heals those who come to him. Mark tells us that this whole city was gathered together at the door of this house. Now, this city wasn't quite as big as ours. There were about 1,500 people, and they were all at this one house. It was like, imagine the Great Gatsby before the Great Gatsby, made out of bricks, not marble. That's what, that's what this scene is like. And this is the first mass gathering of people around Jesus that Mark puts in his gospel. But why? Why would Mark make this the first mass gathering we see? I propose this because he wants to emphasize the truth that Jesus is welcoming to those who come to him and he is healing those who come to him. In this moment, we see physical healing, which Jesus absolutely has the authority to do. But we all we also know that Jesus has the authority to spiritually heal us. Now, I know a lot of us can say with absolute certainty that when you come to Jesus, he does what no one else can. We don't deserve it and we haven't earned it, but he reaches out in compassion and he heals us. Anyone here today who doesn't know Christ, he wants you to come to him. If you come to him, he will give you fullness of life. He will heal your brokenness and he will make you new. We've already seen that he has the power to do it. And here and later, we learn that he has the compassion to do it. Would you turn to Jesus? He alone can heal you. He alone can fulfill you. Just like he did to those who came to him in Mark chapter 1. After Jesus healed many there, he continued preaching the kingdom of God throughout all of Galilee. And as he's traveling through Galilee, we see one of the most mind-blowing, magnificent, beautiful portraits of who Jesus is in all of his ministry. Jesus is met and approached by a leper. I'll read verses 40 to 42 just to refresh our memory. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. At this time, leprosy was considered one of, if not the worst disease to have. Think about how scared the world was of COVID and multiply that by about a thousand. Leprosy was highly contagious. And at this time, if anyone got it, they might as well be as good as dead. Leprosy created skin lesions and nerve damage and over time would decay someone's body until they inevitably died. And there was no cure. When someone contracted leprosy, their life was over. They had to be outcasts and weren't allowed to be anywhere near people in society. And actually, if they did go to a location where people were, or if someone started approaching them, they had to shout out, unclean, unclean. 
just to let people know they had leprosy. If anyone who was clean touched someone with leprosy, they themselves would become unclean. So this leprosy was a really big deal. And when Jesus was approached by this leper, something wonderful happens. But before Jesus did anything, Mark gives us a glimpse into his, Jesus' heart. What we see is at number 15, Jesus has compassion on the unclean. Mark tells us that Jesus looked onto this leper and was moved with pity. Jesus saw this man in his pain, suffering, loneliness, and hopelessness. And Jesus had compassion. He was deeply moved with sympathy and love for this man who was so unclean. Everyone else looked on this man with disgust and contempt. But Jesus looked on him with love and compassion. And know today, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, Jesus looks at you with compassion and love. The king of heaven looks at us with compassion. But then more than just having compassion, Mark tells us that Jesus cleanses the unclean. And this is where Jesus takes tradition and takes what's considered normal, throws it out the window, flips it on, flips it on its head. And the, law, the law at this time actually warned that if anyone had leprosy, they must not be touched by anyone or that person would become unclean. Think about, imagine a rag for a moment. A rag that has mud all over it. Dirty rag, wish I had one. And then you take a clean rag and just lay it on the dirty rag and like lather all across it. What's going to happen is this clean rag is now going to be dirty and you're going to be left with two dirty rags. That's how like all of life goes. The unclean makes the clean dirty. This is exactly how it was with leprosy. As well, But Jesus takes this reality and flips it on his head. When Jesus touches the unclean, he himself doesn't become dirty. But the unclean becomes clean. In a world where everyone looked on a leper and saw nothing but a nuisance that could make them dirty. Jesus looked at this leper and saw someone who needed his grace and who needed to be cleansed. And just like this leper, the reality is you and I are completely unclean. We're completely hopeless and helpless in ourselves. But Christ came to make us clean. His blood washes away all sin. And we can look to no one other than him to give us hope. And everyone can come to him. None will be turned away. This Jesus is the true Lord. He possesses all power and he uses his power to heal those who come to him. He is worthy above all, yet he identifies with sinners. He was tempted like us, but he never failed. He's the king of an eternal, unfading, never ending kingdom. And he invites us sinners into it. He has all authority and he's used it to send us out for his glory. He is loved by God and lived a life that is pleasing to God that he offers to us by his grace. He is a king of compassion who offers us hope. He reaches out to us and he makes us clean. 
This Jesus is really, really good news.